You'll find this on page 457 in the Black Pew Bible. It may seem strange to turn to an Old Testament text on the day of resurrection. But Psalm 22 is about triumph after trouble. And in fact, it shows us the hope of the resurrection after the terrors of crucifixion. I said before, just as grace is sweet when sin has been bitter, so the resurrection is sweet. Because the crucifixion was so terrible. Now, I want to orient you to the text. It's really in two parts. The first 21 verses about the crucifixion. And the end of it about the resurrection. Now, if you don't believe in prophecy, if you don't believe in the supernatural, you're going to have a tough time with this psalm. It's a description by King David of Israel, not of illness, but of execution. And so it's not about himself, though it's in first person, but it's about another, that greater king to come. David, we know, died in the palace and in his bed. He never experienced what this is saying. Besides that, crucifixion wasn't even practiced at the time of King David, nor even for centuries later. Crucifixion is a Jewish, or not a Jewish, but a Roman instrument of death. And the Romans got it from the Greeks, and Alexander the Greek got it from the Persians, and the Persians invented it 600 years before the coming of Christ. But that's 400 years after the time of King David. So 400 years before the Persians invented it, and 1,000 years before Jesus endured it, David prophetically spoke of it. It's a prophetic picture then of the sufferings endured by Jesus, and it is a convincing proof of the divine inspiration of the Bible. Now Jesus had Psalm 22 in mind, and this is again why we're looking at it. He had it in mind on the cross. From the opening phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To its closing phrase, he has done it, which is a lot like, and it's harder to see in the English, but it's a lot like the cross words of our Lord when he said, it is finished, as we'll see in a moment. This was on his mind as he's being crucified. While he hung on that cross, he meditated on it to give him help to endure and to give him hope beyond the grave as he's thinking of his resurrection. And so because it is a help and a hope to the people of God as it was to David and likewise certainly to Christ, so it is a help and hope to us. Let me invite you to give your attention then to the reading of God's holy and inspired word, Psalm 22. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. 
In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who seek me, see me, mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth. And from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me. For trouble is near. And there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord... Praise him, O you offspring of Jacob. Glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard him when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust. Even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. That he has done it. Amen. This is God's word. May he cut our hearts with it. Let's look to him together in prayer. Our Father, thank you for this word. 
May it be a help and a hope to us. Give us eyes. Give us ears. Glorify Jesus and speak grace to our souls. In his name I pray. Amen. Trouble, but triumph. Violence, but victory. Crucifixion, but resurrection. This is the theme. Jesus died a death we would have never expected. He suffered a pain we could have never tolerated to get us a glory we could have never earned. So let's think through the passage together. And in two parts, in verses 1 to 21, the troubles and trust of the Messiah. Troubles and trust. And then in verses 22 to 31, the triumph of the Messiah. In this world, Jesus said, you will have trouble. And he had it the most. Anguish upon anguish. I want you to see in the passage three cycles of anguish and yet trust. In verses 1 and 2, you see his spiritual agony, his cry of abandonment. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day and you do not answer and by night, but I find no rest. So what's the psalmist saying? And what is Jesus saying upon that cross? In the moment I most need you, I find you to be silent. He feels utterly distant. You can feel the pain of his soul here. Why is God so far from helping me? And he receives here no answer, no immediate reassurance. He feels for a time desperately alone. Now, don't skip too quickly to Jesus' own experience. This is language for all believers. It's something God wants all of us to learn to pray. David prayed this. It was taught to be sung by the people of God. Why have you forsaken me? He's troubled, but he's believing. This is not the thought of an unbeliever. He's troubled. He's calling out to God, my God. But when he's doing so, he's not saying, I don't believe in you anymore. Or I don't want anything to do with you. He's saying, you're my God, but it feels like you don't want anything to do with me. You do not answer. I find no rest, he says. And I just want you to see that it is possible. If, if it was possible for David to feel that way, and certainly for Christ to feel that way, it's possible for Christians to feel this way. You remember in the book of Ruth, Naomi had suffered a famine. She's gone with her husband to Moab and there to find food. Her two sons die and her husband dies. She returns then and she says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, meaning bitter, because God has dealt bitterly with me. He has made my life bitter, she says. And some commentators there would say, you know, she shouldn't have said that. Why not? God, she says, has dealt bitterly with me. My two sons are dead. My husband is dead. Call me Mara. Call me bitter. That's a sign of faith for her. This came from God, she says. Not, God had nothing to do with it. Not, get away from me, God. Not, I want nothing to do with you, God. But, for some reason, God has made my life hard. 
And I'm being honest about how hard it is. He has set me down a hard road. He has set me down into the valley of darkness, into the valley of the shadow of death. It's faith to say these things. He is my shepherd. He has brought me here. The 18th century Anglican bishop J.C. Ryle put it well. No doubt there is a sense in which our Lord's telling of being forsaken was peculiar to himself since he was suffering for our sins and not for his own. But still, after making this allowance, there remains the great fact that Jesus was for a time forsaken of the Father. And yet for all that, he was the Father's beloved Son. As it was with the great head of the church, so it may be in a modified sense with his members. They too, though chosen and beloved of the Father, may sometimes feel God's face turned away from them. They too sometimes from illness of body, sometimes from peculiar afflictions, sometimes from carelessness of walk, sometimes from God's sovereign will to draw them nearer to himself, they may be constrained to cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I wonder about you. Have you never felt that way? I'm delighted for you. But don't say it doesn't happen or can't happen in the experience of genuine believers. Just because it hasn't been your experience. This psalm is for you. And yet at the same time, Jesus experienced this in a unique way. Matthew chapter 27, in the crucifixion scene, as Matthew tells us, verse 45, darkness settled over the earth while he was upon that cross, obscuring the sun from noon to three. For three hours in pitch blackness, Jesus was in extreme anguish. And then he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Until then, he had only ever enjoyed intimate fellowship with the Father in heaven. Even upon the earth, Jesus would say in John 16 to his disciples, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Jesus would say, the Father is with me. But on the cross, the confidence of that has departed from him. Why such distress? Because he was made sin for us. And the Father's smiling blessing left him as the Father's curse upon sinners fell upon him. Galatians 3 verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us God cursed him the father turned his back upon him so to speak he experienced upon the cross depart from me I never knew you so to speak and why did he experience that not because he deserved that but because we do he did it for us and for our sins so that anyone And everyone who trusts in him might never experience, depart from me, I never knew you. He was abandoned to the judgment of God that we would be freed from the judgment of God. 
And so he cries out. Now notice what sustains him from abandoning the faith and falling into unbelief. What sustains him amidst this trouble? Verse 3. Yet you are holy, he says. He calls to mind God's character. He remembers that God is holy. So that what is happening to him, he could say, is by the hand of God and yet it's not an unjust hand. He's holy. He is good. He always does what is good and right. The hand of mankind may be raised against me for evil purposes, which is why they killed him. But the hand of God against me was intended for good, for the saving of many lives. And it meant God's justice was against him, that mercy might come to us. And God did him no injustice whatsoever. Because Jesus himself volunteered to come and to step into the place you deserve. There's no cosmic child abuse here. There's no angry father taking it out on an innocent, unsuspecting son. No, this is one eternal God choosing to step down in flesh in the person of the second person of the Godhead to volunteer to endure what we deserve on our behalf, to be struck by the Godhead, to rescue us. And so he remembers, yet you are holy, and and then he reminds himself of God's past faithfulness to the people of God in you. He says, our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. What's he doing? He's saying, I know what you have done in the past for the people of God. You have shown yourself to be faithful in coming to the aid of your people. I will look to you as the holy and faithful God to do that for me in my trouble. And so that sustains him. Now there's a second cycle of trouble and trust. Not only his spiritual agony, but in verses 6 to 8, you see his social and emotional agony where he's mocked by his enemies. Verse 6, he says, But I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Quote, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Now look, what's going on? He's not treated by the bystanders here like somebody made in the image of God, deserving of respect, but he's treated like something less than human, like a worm to be trampled on, right? And so in Matthew chapter 27, again at the cross, what happens? It says, the passersby derided him, wagging their heads. And the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, quote, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. A direct quote of Psalm 22. And the robbers crucified with him. They reviled him too. Same attitude. Same body language. Even the same words. In other words, they tell him, look, if you really trusted God, you wouldn't suffer like this. If God really loved you, you wouldn't be miserable like this. And so they mock him and they mock his faith. And yet, what does he do? Verses 9 to 11. He trusts in God. 
Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. So he, he, he previously took encouragement from God's past dealings with the people of God. You delivered them. You were faithful to them. And now he turns and he says, and I remember your past dealings with me. You have been my God from my youth and you have always been faithful to me. In this crisis, will you be faithful to me now? Of course you will. You've always shown up when I needed you. Just pause there and reflect then in our own experience how it is that we get through our own troubles. It is not by not trusting the Lord our whole lives, then encountering a crisis, and then suddenly having faith. But it is rather by a lifetime of experience of trusting God in our troubles that we can then reflect upon how God has been faithful to us in the past to help us be hopeful and trusting that he will indeed help us in the present. Now notice the third cycle of misery and agony in his life. Not only his spiritual sufferings, his social and emotional sufferings, but his physical agonies, verses 12 to 21. The brutality of the crucifixion here. Verse 12, many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a, like a roaring lion. Now what, what's going on there? Bulls? of Bashan or from the region of Bashan, Bashan, which was the region now known as the Golan Heights, they came from a lush area where they were well fed and large. He's just referring to these big, giant, massive bulls. And they tear at him, he says, like lions devouring prey. And then he turns to dogs, verse 16, for dogs encompass me. But, but in all these, he's speaking of people, a company of evildoers encircles me. In other words, he's saying these people are beastly. They're bulls and they're lions and they're dogs. And like wild animals, they have gathered around me. And as we know, they shouted, crucify him, crucify him. Now in the psalm, notice that terrible weakness comes over him. As it did Jesus, verses 14 and 15, I am poured out like water. In other words, he's saying, look, I'm I'm like a puddle. I I, I have no more strength. All my bones, he says, are out of joint. Now notice here that none of his bones were broken, but they were dislocated. Just as uh, Jesus had none of his bones broken. And he says, my heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength has dried up like a pot shirt. That's like a, a broken clay pot, you know, baked in the sun. It's become too brittle and it's fallen apart. And my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth or to my jaw. I'm, I'm, I'm thirsty. I'm desperately thirsty. Jesus said on the cross, I thirst. So you have this terrible weakness that overcomes him. While he's surrounded by these evildoers. And then the assault upon him is fatal. And here you see... The details of the crucifixion that killed him, verse 16, they have pierced my hands and my feet. And so you think of those nails in Christ. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. In other words, he's naked. He's hung. He's been nailed. And you can see all the exposed bones. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. 
while he's still alive, they're divvying up his possessions, which is exactly what they did to Jesus. And so just reflect on the, on the horror of all this and what it is that brought this about. You know that sin never comes to you and says, I'm evil and I will destroy you and all that you love. Sin never says it will hurt you. It offers you pleasure. It says it's worth it. But if you want to know how bad sin is, your sin, look at the cross. This is what your sin deserves. This is how evil it is. But the cross doesn't just tell you how bad sin is. The cross tells you how great is the love of God. Many people will say these days, don't talk about sin. Don't talk about judgment. Don't talk about wrath. Just talk about love. Just talk about God's love. And God's love is wonderful. But just consider if you take out all the rest. A woman came up to Tim Keller, pastor of Redeemer in New York City, after a sermon. And she disagreed with him. And she said to him, your sermon was too narrow. It was too close-minded. He said, oh, really? And she said, yeah, God didn't have to propitiate wrath. He didn't have to turn away his wrath, satisfy his wrath upon the cross. God didn't have to punish sin. He didn't have to do that. He's just a loving God. And Dr. Keller's response was, What did your God's love cost him? What did it cost him to love you? Well, nothing, she said. And he said, that's usually what it evokes from you. Nothing. But in Christianity, we see God did not spare his own son. So we say on the one hand, oh, how wide and long and high and deep is this love of Jesus. And on the other hand, we say, and the love of Christ compels me. It constrains me because I'm convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves. But for him who died for them, it was raised to life. Do you know the love of God in such a way that it compels you to live for him? Now again, notice the psalmist amidst all of this anguish. Verses 19 and 21, he's still trusting God in his trouble. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, come help. Come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me. That literally means, it literally means you have heard me. It's not a request. It's a statement of fact. You have saved me or you have literally heard me. The next phrase, you have rescued me. The English Standard, before you uh, note, uh, alternatively calls it, you have answered me. Having answered me, you rescued me. In other words, you've heard me, you've answered me. It's a completed action. He called out for help, and he was rescued. But he didn't come down off the cross alive. He was rescued when it seemed hopeless. And relief seemed impossible. Nevertheless, help came. Remarkably. A pastor named William Sankster, he tells the story of the Flixton. It was a a small hull steamer ship in 1918 uh, during World War I. 
headed up the English Channel. The lookout man noticed a white line coming swiftly towards the ship. It was a torpedo from a German submarine, which was uh, right then at that moment rising out of the sea to view the damage it was about to do. The lookout naturally gave a shout and everybody on board topside rushed to the edge to see it. And it was absolutely hopeless. Nothing could be done. It was too late to turn the ship away. And all knew that in a few seconds, they would be blown to bits. And then the Sangster said, an amazing thing happened. Only a few yards from its target, something went wrong with the mechanism of the torpedo. It reared its nose out of the water, turned course, and shot straight and fast on the path it had just traversed. And before, he says, those hapless British sailors knew what had happened, they saw the torpedo smash into the German sub and blew it to the bottom. That, says Ralph Davis, is how the end of verse 21 should strike us. Impossible relief out of hopeless despair. Like an empty tomb after an evil crucifixion. You heard me. You answered me. Which means, reflect on this. Jesus meditating on this psalm while he's upon the cross, he knew that God would deliver him. And he asked for that deliverance and he received it. The situation was not out of God's control. And so you and I can take comfort likewise. Jesus, our Savior, suffered Spiritually, mentally, emotionally, socially, physically. He remembered God's past faithfulness to the people of God. He remembered God's past faithfulness to himself. He asked for help. And in God's timing, he received that help. You and I can learn from Jesus to cast all our anxieties on the Lord because he cares for us, says the Apostle Peter. Now that's one half of the experience of Jesus. More briefly, verse 22 and following, we see the fruit of his troubles, a celebration of his triumph, the victory of his resurrection. Was he delivered from death? No. Was he delivered through death? Yes. When he came down from the cross, he was dead. But he didn't stay in the tomb. God raised him. He's alive. And suddenly in the psalm, he speaks of praising God in the assembly of the people of God to celebrate what God did for him. And there he invites us to worship God with him. Notice verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. I will tell of your name to my brothers. Now Hebrews chapter 2 verses 11 and 12 in the New Testament reflects on that. And puts those words in the mouth of Jesus. He is not ashamed to call us brothers. Saying I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. In other words the writer says Jesus is the speaker. And we are his family. And he says let's praise God together. Verse 23. You who fear the Lord praise him. All you offspring of Jacob Glorify him. Stand in awe of him. Notice why you should praise him. Verse 24. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He's not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. What's he saying? 
He's not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. Have you ever thought that your afflictions, your conditions are so gross or so unlovely or so repulsive that God himself couldn't stand to look at you or touch you? That he would despise you for your affliction as well as not just your affliction, but despise you as the afflicted? Well, the psalmist here says Jesus, in New Testament language, bore our sins on his body on the tree that God did not despise him and God will not despise you. He did not hide his face from him. Now, briefly and painfully, but not fully and finally, And Jesus then in his resurrected state is not ashamed to publicly own you and me. The ones whose by our sins put him on that tree. He isn't ashamed to own you publicly as his what? Siblings, brothers and sisters. He isn't embarrassed to be associated with you. He doesn't hide his face In shame from you, it says. He doesn't look among the people of God and find a crazy uncle he's unwilling to know. Or find some son or daughter who has so scandalized the family that he's unwilling unwilling to turn his face away. He doesn't find those things. He knows exactly who we are and he stands in the congregation of God's people and he owns us as his. He says, I am yours and you are mine. Let's together worship God. That's the first thing. Second, notice who else is invited to this celebration. Verse 27, all the families of the nations are invited. Verse 29, rich and poor. We might say healthy and dying, Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free, in the language of the New Testament. Verse 30 here, posterity will serve him, even people yet unborn, it says. Do you realize what what the psalmist then is saying? Or what Jesus is thinking as he's thinking about this psalm on the cross. He is meditating on his coming triumph over death, knowing he's going to be successful. And he's thinking of who? He's thinking not of himself, he's thinking of you. He has you in mind, even the posterity not yet to be born. People from every tribe and tongue and language and nation. He has you in his heart and in his mind and on his thoughts at the very moment of his death. And his plan all along was then to rise from the dead, to bring salvation to the ends of the earth, to bring salvation to you. And so in this passage, we see the troubles and yet trust and triumph of the Messiah. And so three things. One, take comfort. Christ understands every bitterness you've tasted because he's tasted worse. Second, trust the Father when you're in trouble. If he answered his son whom he had forsaken for you, then you can trust him to answer you too. That will not keep you from death in this world But it will keep you in the hand of the Savior through death to enter into the joy of your master, even resurrection. And so thirdly, celebrate his triumph 
Verse 31, as we said, ends with, he has done it. And Jesus, in thinking about that, his last words on the cross, it is finished. It's done. It's accomplished. Salvation. Full and final. For every generation, for everyone who trusts in him, is found in him who died and rose from the dead on our behalf. Let's trust him. Let's celebrate him. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the gift of your only unique beloved son. And we bow and we marvel and we worship and we celebrate and we say thank you. Help our hearts to hope in you, even through our own troubles. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.